Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. By Thanksgiving of 2017, Jenny and Gary Landsman knew they had a problem. They were the parents of two young sons, one 17 months old, one four months old. And the children had both been diagnosed with a rare disease, Canavan disease. Not only is Canavan disease currently incurable, but if you look on the sort of federal clinical trials database, there's not even any drug being tested for Canavan disease. It's considered hopeless. It's very rare, so not that many people work on it. It's a genetic uh, uh, mutation that is most common amongst Ashkenazi Jews, and they each carried it. And so it was the combination of the bad gene from the mother and the father that ended up causing disease in both in both boys. So that's what happened. Antonio Regalado writes about biotechnology for MIT Tech Review, and he's chronicled the story of the Landsmans. Regalado says, we live at a moment when medicine is changing, not just for the Landsmans, but for all of us. In some ways, the chapter that we're living in now started nearly 20 years ago in the East Room of the White House. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. That day in June of 2000, President Bill Clinton focused on how our health would be forever changed and the notion that doctors and scientists could now understand each of us as individuals. They could know what you need and what I need. But there were a couple pieces missing in that optimistic scenario, says Regalado. First, sequencing a few genomes, that's not enough. You need huge amounts of data to really start making sense of things. Second, once you find the problems, you're going to need some tools to fix them. And as those things come together, the knowledge and the ability to change it is where you're really starting to see, you know, the incredible treatments that everybody's hoping for. What Jenny Landsman was hoping for by the end of 2017 was a miracle, a scientific miracle. We decided that we weren't going to just take what the doctor said, that, that we should just go home and love them and make them feel comfortable, that we're going to find something. And when we searched, we found there was so much science and research done already. They've come so far. And because it's a rare disease, there's just not enough money. They had seen something, a, a promise in technology that I thought was very interesting, which is that they, they saw that gene therapy had gone to the point where it could plausibly be used to treat Canavan disease. There might actually be a cure or a treatment. Regalado says that that year, 2017, the first gene therapies were approved in the U.S., two for cancer, one for a kind of blindness. And the basic idea of gene therapy is you try to fix genes that, for some reason, aren't working quite right. You often do this through a virus, which can be repurposed into a delivery system for the gene that you need, which means that we're sitting, potentially, on the cusp of treatments that could impact all sorts of medical conditions, not just rare diseases. But to push science along, you need money. And so for a lot of these diseases, the exact genetic cause is known. There's maybe five, 7,000 sort of rare inherited diseases. And for many of them, scientists know the exact genetic cause. It's this DNA letter. They know exactly what it is. And so what was interesting for these parents is that they saw that this technology of gene therapy could potentially help their sons, except that nobody was working on such a gene therapy. And so they just made the decision, well, we're going to try and fund it. We're here in Marine Park, Brooklyn. We're here overwhelmed. We're here because 
so much money has been raised on behalf of our two little boys. What's amazing, Regalado notes, is not that this family wanted to raise awareness of Canavan disease to help future children. They believed that science was moving so quickly, they might be able to help their own children. And if those children were left untreated, they would likely not survive past childhood. They got a price quote. There's a meeting down near the World Trade Center in New York between the Landsmans and a doctor in New Jersey, a researcher named Paolo Leone, and she tells them the price. She says, I think I can help you, and it's going to cost $1.5 million. And uh, the reason that it costs so much is that actually producing these viral particles that you need uh, to do the gene therapy, that's the, that's the majority of the cost. That costs about a million dollars. It's just expensive to do. The Landsman's GoFundMe campaign raised almost exactly the amount of money they needed, which, as Regalado has pointed out, is probably not a fair way to parcel out cures. Indeed, other families who were wealthier than the Landsman's have paid millions of dollars to help their kids. For the Landsman's, getting the treatment has been slower than they hoped. There are hurdles with the FDA, and they don't yet have the medicine they're helping to finance. It just hasn't passed all those hurdles. But the speed of what they're hoping for indicates we might be at a tipping point, a moment when millions and millions of people have now had their genomes sequenced, providing a wealth of data for researchers. And it's a moment when we're finally coming up with tools to fix all sorts of problems, tools that help us understand that wondrous map that President Clinton celebrated nearly two decades ago. I think we were probably naive in thinking that we'd be able to get there quickly. It's been, as you say, about 20 years, and and we're just beginning to see the the fruit to that work. Carlos Bustamante is a professor of biomedical data science, genetics, and biology at Stanford. And it's really been only in the last five years that we've been actually able to get drugs based on those discoveries to market. And uh, we're still sort of in a kind of Gordian knot in some regards where we're beginning to understand the genetics of predisposition and where we'd love to get to are the regiments that we should be on to prevent disease in the first place. Drugs, medical care, they're all changing because of what we now know about our genes and the huge pools of information that we've collected. That affects how we stop rare diseases and how we deal with common problems, says Bustamante, like cholesterol. So today, right, we, we really are in a position where we can use genetics to identify people at risk and put them on preventative treatments that could avert heart attacks and strokes. But the problem for those who are most likely to have heart attacks and strokes is that the cost of preventing those things from happening rather than dealing with them once they have happened, it's not a cost that our healthcare system is set up to shoulder. We have a sick care system. We don't have a health care system. And so the preventative part where prophylactic deployment of medications could literally prevent disease in the future, you need to come up with a way to pay for that. In some ways, we've already taken baby steps, literally, down the road of understanding our future selves better. For parents out there, you may be familiar with newborn screening. So on the first day of life in, in this country and in many countries, first thing that happens is that you get screened for varies in the United States from state to state for about 50 different conditions. One of the most recognized is probably PKU. So if you've ever looked at the back of a Diet Coke can, it says, if you've got PKU, don't drink Diet Coke because 
you cannot metabolize an amino acid called phenylalanine. And children who are born with this disorder, you need to identify them very early because if you put them on a special diet, they will actually be fine. If you don't put them on a special diet, then they could actually develop developmental delays and, and mental retardation. So you, you've, you've got a series of diseases that we think are so important and a series of inborn errors of metabolism, say, that we've decided are so important as a, as a society that we screen for them on the first day of life. But as our knowledge of genetics grows, it's other countries taking the lead on using this information. Britain, for example, has created a state-owned company to sequence tens of thousands of high-risk genomes. The hope is to help doctors in the NHS, the National Health Service that covers everyone in the country, the hope is to help them understand patients' problems without making them undergo a whole slew of tests. Because these people may be going in for repeated MRIs or scans or, you know, just overuse of the system in ways that we've become accustomed to. And so I do believe that, you know, we're all kind of walking around with an unknown to us genomic score, which is the sort of value of collecting our genetic information against the current cost of that testing based on what we know to date on our electronic record. Is there then a date in the future, maybe a close date, when we're just going to, everybody's genome is going to be sequenced because it would be better if we knew more, if the doctor knew more than if the doctor, as you say, knew less and you came in and you're like, I don't know, I have these pains, I don't know. And they do 50 million tests on you to try to figure out something that's already in your genes. It may be part of your annual exam when you turn 18, if not earlier, Hmm. right? And as you know, I mean, one of the challenges we face in, in biomedicine is in the reproducibility problem, right? Many times an experiment gets done, people try to reproduce it, and it doesn't happen. Today, the UK Biobank just released data on 500,000 people, right? Okay. So you're talking about experiments that are being done now on the orders of millions of people with genetic information linked to trade information or phenotype information that's just giving you massive power to get at some of these signals that we can then delve into. So let's talk about those sort of huge data sets. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've certainly seen, at least here in the U.S., millions of people over the last few years, you know, uh, pay 23andMe yep. or Ancestry to find out things about themselves, um, to find out things about proclivities that they have. I know actually 23andMe has a has a deal, I think, with GlaxoSmithKline right. to, to develop drugs. What does it mean when you have millions and millions of people basically saying, here's some of my genetic information? Like, what does that mean for science and for the development of medicines? Well, wearing my optimist optimist hat, I I think that what 23andMe has done is absolutely revolutionary and I think really begins to democratize both access to genetic information and the ability of people to begin to manage that information and turn the kind of crank on engaging individuals so they share more information so that we can then use it to do more and more studies. 
they've been able to do it at scale and they've been able to do it in ways that I think are very, very exciting. It's being replicated, of course, also outside of the, of the private sector. And you've got now, as I mentioned, national efforts that are going in that direction. And Britain has led the way because they're now marrying their national health care service to actual commissioning of genetics into the NHS, which is, I, I think, a very strategic decision uh, for them to, to make. Finland is also doing this. Denmark is also doing this. So there's a sort of massive movement in uh, a lot of the European countries to uh, to do this. Iceland was ahead of the game with uh, Deco Genetics. It also, in many ways, did more for complex disease genetics between 2005 and 2012 than almost any other organization. The NIH has also invested heavily in this. Um, and the truth of the matter is that when, when you look at the return on that investment, some estimates are that the Human Genome Project probably costs between a billion to two billion dollars, and it's returned somewhere on the order of 120 to 150 billion dollars. Wow, that's a good investment. That's a tremendous I mean, ROI. I would take that. I'd take that any day. <laughs> Absolutely. The other thing that has clearly happened is that you've begun to get a discussion around the data privacy issues, around ownership issues. If I look at my kids and and many children today, some of the most valuable assets they have are the compounding data streams that they will generate in their lifetime. If we look at healthcare today as an industry, it's 20% of the U.S. GDP. It overtook retail last year. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the largest corporations in the world with the most cash on hand have telegraphed that they're getting into healthcare in massive ways. Apple's in healthcare, Amazon's in healthcare, Google's headed into healthcare, right? All in their different ways, right? And and partly it's because they almost have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. <laughs> you know, what, what else are they going to go into, right? <laughs> it's the biggest industry. So these questions that we've been grappling with around data are only going to get, in some sense, more interesting when we think about healthcare data. But what's super cool is that a lot of that data that today is nominally locked into the data repositories of hospitals and clinics will soon be available on your phone if it isn't already, hmm. right? And so you will have ownership of that data. And so in a, day, in, in a decade, the most important data that you're going to need to manage your patients is going to walk in with them. But there's no doubt that in the same way that Facebook and Google can micro-target ads to you, your data streams are going to be extraordinarily telling about your health and how are we going to manage that. That's a huge societal question. So let's hold the conversation there for just a minute. I'm talking to Carlos Bustamante. He's a professor of biomedical data science and genetics at Stanford. And when we come back, milk and blonde hair and why they tell us something unexpected about who we are and how we got that way. If you want to read more about our scientific journey in the almost 20 years since the human genome was sequenced, head to our website, innovationhub.org. 
There we will also have more about the Landsman family, who we introduced you to at the start of the show. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. For hundreds of years, people who have studied and visited the Solomon Islands have noticed something strange. A sliver of the population has blonde hair. The Solomon Islands are in the Pacific, about 2,000 miles from Australia, and they're made up of hundreds of little islands. Pretty much everyone on the islands has dark skin and dark hair, but somewhere around 10% of people have dark skin and blonde hair. And so we thought, well, let's go in and, and study it. It's almost surely going to be a Captain Cook allele. It's the same allele that's got that causes blonde hair in Europe. That's Carlos Bustamante, an expert on genetics at Stanford. But the weird thing, despite what scientists had hypothesized, is that the gene that causes some kids to develop blonde hair, it had not been introduced by Europeans. It was a good hypothesis. It just turned out to be wrong. It's a homegrown variant. In fact, it's at 30 percent frequency but because blonde hair is recessive. Right. That explains the 10 percent. Right. 30 percent times 30 percent, 9 percent. Apparently, then, there are multiple paths to having blonde hair. There's the path that Europeans took. But you can also have a completely different set of genes, as some folks in the Solomon Islands do, and also end up with something that looks similar, but at the genetic level, isn't. Over the last 20 years, as we've gotten better and better at understanding genetics, we've begun to unravel mysteries about what's inside us, how we came to be the way we are, and how you treat problems that haven't yet surfaced. Bustamante says that so far, this knowledge has made the biggest impact on people with diseases controlled by a single gene, like cystic fibrosis. But that's changing, quickly. A problem remains, though. A problem you could call the blonde hair problem. If, if we think of data as the new oil, right, we've, we've only been fishing in the North Sea, right? And there's a ton of opportunity to look in, in other populations. And it, not only is it like the right ethical thing to do, but from a just purely scientific point of view, where are you going to place your bets? The evidence is that people in different parts of the world have different genetic reasons for exhibiting a given trait. Assuming that people in the Solomon Islands and Sweden have blonde hair for the same reason is logical. It just happens not to be right. And that could be true for people who have heart disease and cancer and all sorts of other things. The total numbers are just incredibly tilted to individuals of of European descent. When we called attention to this around 2011, the statistic was something like 96 percent Part of the problem, Bustamante says, is that some of the pioneers in understanding how our genetics impact our future health, well, they're in Europe, Iceland, Finland, Britain. He says China is gaining ground quickly. 23andMe has done work gathering more African-American genetic data. The National Institutes of Health are also on the case. And if you want to know why expanding our knowledge of genetics is crucial to understanding what ails you, consider, if you will, the strange case of milk and of something called lactose persistence, which, Bustamante says, is what you are if you're not lactose intolerant. And the reason I call it lactose persistence is because it's a weirdly unique human trait. You never saw a mammal, an adult mammal, drink milk, right? When was the last time you saw a horse drink milk? I I haven't seen it. Yeah, never saw it, (laughs) right? So there are a couple of 
human populations out there that can digest milk into adulthood. And it turns out the reason they can do this is based on a mutation that keeps the gene that allows you to digest lactose on after the age of weaning, right? Most mammals turn that gene off after weaning. What's really interesting is that the mutations that allow you to do that have evolved multiple times. So in Europe, they evolved. And then in Africa, they also evolved because pastoralism as a mode of existence arose multiple times in, in, in human history. Right? So it's basically people had access to, I assume, animals right. that gave them milk, like goats or cows or whatever. And so it was super helpful if they could use that as a source of food. And those individuals who happened to have the ability to digest milk as a mode of subsistence, you know, were able to persist, right? So now you think about, okay, blonde hair. You don't need to be a Harvard-trained MGH dermatologist to diagnose someone with blonde hair. You got to be about five years old and look around and say, geez, I wonder why some people have blonde hair, some people have brown hair. That's kind of a cool question, right? So if that's blonde hair, what about diabetes? You know, if we think about diabetes, it does present differently in populations of European descent versus individuals of Indian Asian descent versus individuals of Japanese descent. So why would we presuppose that genetics are going to be identical? That's so interesting. So you mean you might have a whole bunch of people in this country with diabetes, which you do, obviously, but maybe the path to getting there for different people, you got to the same destination, but you took a different route. hundred percent. That's right. So, and then, of course, if you took a different route, then how can you possibly treat people with all exactly the same drugs that targets exactly the same thing? It's You can't, right? right? And, and you're missing out, most importantly, on the opportunity to discover the genes that you could target to ameliorate. And what's really interesting is that we are often finding that there's almost, uh, you know, two sides of the same coin. So if we think again about familial hypercholesterolemia, in the families with super high levels of cholesterol, these are people who, by the time they're teenagers, are presenting with lipid profiles of people in in middle age or even advanced age. Um, but it's just like part of their family. It's they're, just part of their family. Something, they're not doing anything no. wrong. It's just it's part just of their genetics. Yeah. Okay. And they don't even know. It. They can't even tell. Right. And it's overexpression of this gene called PCSK9. But there are also some people who were lucky enough to be born with a superhuman mutation that turns off that gene. Those people actually have naturally low levels of bad cholesterol. And there was a study out of Dallas that that sort of proved this out. And it became the sort of real basis for these so-called PCSK9 inhibitors. And in, in that study, they even had a, they have an aerobics instructor that was born with two of these mutations. That woman had like a bad cholesterol of like 25, right? You didn't even know that you could have a bad cholesterol at 25 and, and still be super healthy, right? So you're getting these druggable targets by studying these individuals at the extremes of the distribution and by only focusing on populations of European descent, you're just leaving a ton of interesting biology on the table. So one of the massive challenges we face is that the cost of bringing new drugs to market just continues to skyrocket, right? It's billion and a half, $2 billion, depending on what conditions you're looking at, partly because most of the things you try don't work. So only one in 20 of the compounds that you try actually make it out of the clinical trials. With genetics, you're increasing those odds maybe to 30%, 40%, 50%. 
are making it out of the trials, right? So you're accelerating the trials. And if you now add to that the ability to look at different populations, look at extremes of the distribution, begin to bring this all together, then ultimately we're all kind of benefiting from, from those discoveries. If you only do it in a subset of the population, on the other hand, you're going to widen health disparities because you're developing medications that potentially are only benefiting a subset of people. So you're paying for a bunch of stuff that for some people, those pills aren't doing a thing. A hundred percent. So let me ask you about this cost thing. As, you know, uh, companies have gotten better at looking at sometimes more rare diseases, that they've figured out where in the genetics these things are, what do you target, how do you deal with this? We see incredible drugs being developed, but we also see these incredible price tags. So like Savaldi for hepatitis uh, C can cure the disease, $85,000 a pop. Now, you know, most and that's people, a bargain. Right, most people who have hepatitis C don't have like $85,000 yeah. lying around. There's a one-time treatment for an inherited form of blindness. Spark got, Therapeutics. Yeah, got approval in 2017. Costs $850,000. Per eye. So, okay. So where, what do you do? How do you make yeah. sense of where this is heading? So I think you have to get to a true calculation of lifetime risk and how we shift risk from being a short-term hold that currently is held by health insurance, which again, as we were talking about, we don't have a healthcare system in this country. We have a sick care system. That sick care system incentivizes acute care versus preventative care. It's an extraordinarily uneven distribution. So about 1% of the claimants eat 22% of the pie. Five... These are like the chronic people who probably are chronically sick, I'm guessing. Yeah, maybe. Or they're okay. people at the uh, you know end, the end of life. Mm-hmm. Okay. The okay. top 5% eat up 50% of the pie, right? The bottom 50% eat up less than 5% of the pie, right? So healthy people don't use up a lot of healthcare spend, right? I mean, it's almost a tautology, right? So in an homage to Pareto, right, there's, it's an 80-20 rule with, with these kind of fat tails. So if, if you want to get at preventing disease, you've got to figure out how you come up with models that you can afford these drugs on a 20, 30-year timeline, and, and a lot of the issue is that today you're able to cycle through health insurance every year, right? You get your select benefits. You can choose, you know, what plan you're going to go on. Most Americans end up getting their health insurance through their employer, right? As I like to say, there's, there's probably no greater privilege in this country more than race or class or gender. I would say it's employer-provided health insurance. People don't change jobs because of health insurance. People don't move states because of health insurance, right? And so you're, you're kind of stuck in this sort of poor model, I think, where it's both a tax on the employer side. And for most people, they're not getting part of that, a lot of that benefit. And on top of that, you got this high deductible part of it, right? So, and I think the latest numbers, the Wall Street Journal had this at like, the current price to employers for a family plan is like $20,000 a year. 
per employee. So, so you, you know, so, are, but are drugs going to get more? I mean, how, then how do you deal with this? I mean, we, we were just talking about you've got these great treatments now for your child and you've got to pay a million dollars. So I guess does that mean millionaires treat their children and other people don't? Uh, you've got to you've got to figure out how you align the shift so you're not thinking about the annual right so the the insurance company is making decisions based on who's going to have an event this year right so if we think about the the case of again the familial hypercholesterolemia these patients that have super high bad cholesterol and you've got the PCSK9 inhibitor which you know, again, list price was twelve thousand. I think they're now trying to get a negotiated rate of like four or five thousand dollars a year, and that's also where the health economists have said is sort of the fair price. But if you're a teenager, right? Why would you cover if you're an insurer? Why would you cover this for a teenager if that teenager is unlikely to have that heart attack in the next year? Right? That teenager is going to have that heart attack in thirty years, right? So it's this sort of really terrible misalignment of incentives. And some would argue that the way health insurance in this country is structured is that you're on your employer's dollars until you're 65 and retire, and then you go on Medicare. And then some of that's privately managed through Medicare Advantage and so on. So by that time, you're already well down the road of chronic disease. So what you really want to do is start screening people early, start with kids where you can intervene, and the cost of the prophylactic deployment of these medications can actually bend the cost curve. So it sounds like what you're saying is what you hope is going to be the future is that genetic information is going to help us to keep people well rather than what we're doing right now, which is uh, paying a whole bunch of money when they get sick, when they have the heart attack, and then we have to, like, open them up and and operate. Absolutely. And and it's not – again, the genetics is a piece of it, and it's the first – tranche of what we can now do well, I think, because we can use the genetics to identify people at risk. But if it's maybe 5 to 10 percent of how we are calculating in the next 5 to 10 years, we'll begin to fill in the rest, not only because the genetics will get better, but we'll have all of these other data streams and biomarkers that will really, really allow us to fine-grain understand the risks. And it becomes this question of how do you put that together? Carl Spustamante is a professor of biomedical data science, genetics, and biology at Stanford. Carlos, thanks very much for coming in. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. On our website, you can dive into some of the genetic stories that we talked about, from blonde hair in the Solomon Islands to extremely high cholesterol that runs in families, to the fascinating tale of how lactose persistence became a thing. That's all at innovationhub.org.